Welcome to the Delve Into Money podcast. I am your host, Curtis Haney. This is the personal finance podcast where we attempt to demystify money by reviewing books and applying what we learn to our own financial journeys. This is episode number 35 of the Delve Into Money podcast. Thank you so much for joining me today. Today and over the next few weeks, we're going to talk through different concepts from the book Atomic Habits. Atomic Habits was written by James Clear and published in 2018. I first read this book in 2019 and really enjoyed it. It had a pretty big impact on me and it actually started my journey of reading through a number of books on habits, which I'm extremely grateful for. That's where I read Tiny Habits. I read another book, Elastic Habits. Um, another one called Mini Habits. I'm sure there's more, but those are the ones that come to the top of my mind right now. James's journey with habits started with an accident he had in high school. This accident led to him having to redevelop habits and get extremely interested in the topic. Today, we're going to discuss a concept out of chapter two of the book, which is called How Your Habits Shape Your Identity. And I'm going to tell a personal story and relate it back to the framework that James talks about. So going back to 2010, I was just a year or two graduated from college and was learning how to live on my own. In college, I played basketball almost daily, as well as worked out to stay in shape. So while I wasn't in peak physical condition, I was in pretty good physical shape. But once you leave the comfort of that college campus, that routine of playing basketball or playing a sport on a daily basis, it's hard to continue that outside of the confines of college. It's really hard, especially when you're moving to a town where you know no one to find a basketball court where you can fit in and play on a regular basis. So I was looking for athletic pursuits to keep me active. I'd been going to the gym, uh, doing that sort of thing, but I tend to get a little bit bored with that sort of pursuit. So I started uh, Beachbody's at-home workout called Insanity, which is very much cardio, jumping, moving, very, very high energy. It does amazing things for your athleticism, but it's high impact and, and just an intense, intense workout. I enjoyed it and I've gone through it a number of times now, but as I wrapped up with the first 90 days of the program, and, and I believe it's 60 to 90, just depending on how you go about it, but I did the longest version of it. I knew that I didn't want to go back to the start and repeat it, but it really increases your cardio, your lungs, gives you a lot of juice in your legs. And so I had a friend that was, that was at work that asked me if I was a runner. I had ran a few times during the insanity workouts, uh, just as kind of a switch up because I didn't just do it 90 days straight, probably did it over um, 100, 120 days, but I hadn't made a consistent habit. Of, of running and I never really ran before in my life. But despite that, I just answered, yeah, I, I would love to run. You know, I'm, I'm getting into running. Uh, I would love to go run with you. So over the next few weeks, we ran together 
a number of times. Uh, we were really good partners uh, because we had a very similar pace, but we didn't continue to run together just because of schedules and, and the way that worked out. As a result of this, running kind of came my next pursuit, the next thing that I was super passionate and fired up about. Growing up, I'd never been a skinny kid. I was taller when I was young, uh, and, and in basketball, I played in the post. I played, well, I didn't play center. I did play the other post positions, meaning I was around the basket. I was the rebounder. I was the scrapper. When I started football in middle school, I played offensive line. Somewhere along the way, though, I quit growing. And with that, in, in some ways, I had a little bit of an identity crisis because I'd always identified as this person that was uh, kind of playing these, these kind of rough and tumble positions. But now I was not able to play them anymore. And so I kind of thinned out. Playing basketball was harder because I was having to play further from the basket and I wasn't used to that. I hadn't developed ball handling skills. I hadn't de developed those skills that a typical guard in basketball would develop. So then through college, I, I went and I started playing basketball. I developed those exterior skills. I developed my, my ball handling. I developed all the things that I needed. And so I had continued to be more thinned out. And that was at the time that I started running. So it fit me a little bit better than it had been if I would have done it as a child. But here's the thing. I still saw myself as the kid I was growing up. It was hard for me to adopt this new identity of this person that was in shape, this person that was a runner. So for the longest time, I was just playing the role of a runner. I didn't actually identify as one of those people, and we'll come back to that here in a minute. Even still, I wanted to push myself, so I signed up for a race. The first one I did was a 5K, then it was a 10K. I really enjoyed the 10K as I'd never seen myself as fast. See, we're going back to this identity of I wasn't a runner. But I could hold my fastest pace for the 10K distance. So the pace that I could run my 5K at, which was the fastest I could get out of me, I could hold that pace for a whole 10K. So I started identifying as the 10K being my best distance. And so I would seek out those races and try and find those 10Ks so that I could improve my time. In 2011, I ran in eight races altogether, and each time I had this internal challenge of trying to beat the best time from my previous races. By the end of 2011, I knew that I wanted to do something more than a 5 or 10K, so what was the next step? I had to decide where I wanted to go. I looked at doing some different triathlons or even duathlons, you know, the idea of swimming wasn't much fun to me, but I enjoyed riding a bike. I thought of doing longer distance running, doing some trail running, whatever it looked like. I, I tried to decide what I wanted to do. And ultimately, I fell on being the person who I am. I knew that the marathon was the most well-known and like the really big one. I didn't go for the half marathon. I went, I didn't go for another step in between, which would have been maybe a short triathlon or a short duathlon. I went directly for what I felt like was the whole enchilada. So in January 2012, I started training for the Memorial Marathon here in Oklahoma City. 
At some point during that process, I started to identify as a runner. It became central to who I was. Now, in some ways, marathon training requires that. I've mentioned this before in a podcast, but you run three to four days a week with cross training on other days. And as you get further into training, Saturday mornings become a sacred time where you did your long runs. It could be a whole day affair once you include the recovery. And for some of them, it was definitely an exhausting thing where I didn't do anything else on a Saturday. I got into the culture of all the gear, the snacks, the mindset. Just really trying to, and I mean, I say trying to, but really embodying what being a runner was. At some point, and I can't tell you when in this process it happened, my identity changed. Now, in 2012, I had a huge disappointment in that I wasn't able to run the marathon. I got sick a few weeks before and I wasn't able to recover in time to run the full marathon. So I knew that I wanted to reach this goal. So I trained again in 2013, but I was denied again, this time because of a car accident. Finally, in 2014, I didn't have, I guess, I didn't want to go back to training for that full marathon. So I ended up running the half marathon and never actually ran a full marathon, despite training for it twice. Now you hear of people that don't get to run the marathon after training. And typically it's running injuries that cause that. But in my cases, both of those were not running injuries, which was really frustrating for me. At some point during this multi-year process, it's like a four-year process of really running all the time, I started to not enjoy it as much. I put so much pressure on myself to improve my outcomes That when I didn't chip away at that goal that I'd set, it actually started chipping away at the identity as a runner that I'd created. And I know that the disappointment that was there, not getting to run in the marathons, was real as well. And and it's a little bit demoralizing when you train for three to four months for a whole big race, devote 16, 18, 20 weeks to this training. And don't get the payoff at the end. And in both cases, my injuries came after the bulk of the training was done. When I was on the downslope of the training, where I'd already worked myself up to my peak, meaning that if the race had happened before the injury or before the sickness, I would have been fine to run. So when I finally ran the half marathon in 2014, my enthusiasm was already decreasing. I'd not trained as hard as I should have, and I failed to meet the time goal that I set for myself. While I was excited for the accomplishment, there was always a tinge of disappointment for not doing the full marathon that was then compounded when I didn't reach my half marathon time goal. This disappointment, and in a way, identity crisis brought on by the disappointment, led to me taking a break from running. At the time, I thought this was a temporary break. And I did run a few times after that, but I've not competed in a race since that half marathon. And each and every time I've started, I've not had the enthusiasm to continue. I did for different periods train for months at a time 
but I never committed to getting back out on that race track. You know, even though you're running on city streets, but it's a race, so we're calling it a racetrack, right? So in recently reflecting on this, I asked myself, what changed? I fought and fought and fought to adopt this identity as a runner, but then I quickly shucked it to the side. So I had to ask myself, did I ever truly adopt this identity? James Clear talks about a two-step process to adopting a new identity. The first step is decide the type of person you want to be. I had decided for multiple years that I wanted to be a runner. So I accomplished step one. Step number two is prove it to yourself with small wins. When I started running, I decided I wanted to be a runner. I'd accomplished step number one. I went out three to four times a week. Each time I ran, I further established that identity as a runner. I established it every time I ran. I established it when I bought the gear. I established it when I did events. And I established it when I competed for those increased or better times. When I cut back on events, my running, the desire to push, started to wane. Each day I made the choice not to run was another vote towards the identity of not being a runner. While I do think I adopted the runner identity for a time, I allowed doubts to fester through it all. As I reflect back, I wonder what other beliefs that I'd held on to even while a runner that I'd held on to from the time before being a runner made it easier to accept the identity that I wasn't a runner. There's a few of them that I was able to identify, and I've already referenced a little bit of it up above. The first one is, is I told myself I wasn't fast. I looked at those around me and compared my speed and times to them and knew that I wasn't the fastest guy in the room. If I wasn't the fastest, could I even claim to be a runner? That's the question I kind of asked myself. If I wasn't the one who was winning the race, was I actually a runner? And that's a really stupid belief. That's just calling it straight out. It's a self-defeating belief. This self-doubt, this comparison made it easy for me to accept the votes I was making towards not being a runner when I slowed down my pace of running. And so we're going back of each day I chose not to run, each day I told myself I wasn't fast was a day that I made a vote towards the identity of not being a runner. The second thing that I held on to, the second belief that I held on to that I think made it easy for me to quit running was I told myself it was okay to eat unhealthy. I continued to eat poorly and use running as my excuse for eating poorly. I was burning a bunch of calories because I was running a lot of miles, so I needed this food. I used that as an excuse to continue my unhealthy eating habits. I knew in leading up to different races, I knew that this was holding me back from reaching the times I wanted. And in a few instances, I made choices before races to try and really hone in what I was eating, but ultimately that commitment was never there. And it was because I held on to this fat kid identity, for lack of better terms. I don't mean that derogatorily, so don't, don't take it that way. But I held on to that identity that, that I wasn't a healthy eater. And in some ways, I've continued to hold up on to that identity for years and years after that. The, the third 
belief that I held on to was I told myself I was overweight. I told myself that I wasn't the prototypical runner. While I was running, I still wasn't the skinny runner that you see at the front of the pack on these marathons. I wasn't living up to the world's expectation of what a runner was. I convinced myself I was an imposter in a uniform, in a jersey. The reality was the only expectation I wasn't living up to was my own expectation. No one was looking at me and thinking, he's not a runner. I was in good shape. But I convinced myself because of the past narratives that I'd had, being slow, being an unhealthy eater, being overweight, that I was not a runner. These self-sabotages made it easy for me to let go of my identity as a runner. So while I thought I'd made significant and permanent change in my life, I'd actually held on to things that made it easy for me to revert back to my old identity. When we say, I'm terrible at blank, I'm not this, whatever that identity that we're saying we're not. I'm always blank. I'm always late. I'm always in trouble. I'm always behind on bills. Also, I'm not good with, so I'm not good with money. I'm not good with kids. We're constantly self-sabotaging our futures by claiming these identities, by saying I'm terrible at, I'm not, I'm always, I'm not good with. We're adopting an identity that's counter to what we actually say we want. And that's what's ingrained in those statements. I'm terrible at is an acknowledgement that you want to be better at something, but you're adopting the identity that you're not going to ever be good at it. I'm not is a definitive statement as well. I'm always is in a statement that means that I always am, always will be. Even though I don't want to be, I can't change this. It's looking at something and saying I can't be that. So this made me think, what are some things that we hold on to that self-sabotage our relationship with money? We tell ourselves we're bad with money. We tell ourselves we'll never be able to get ahead. We tell ourselves our past has put us at a disadvantage. We tell ourselves saving for retirement is hard. We tell ourselves kids are expensive. We tell ourselves we have to keep up with our neighbors. We live with a scarcity mindset. We fear the catastrophic outcome or past mistakes. We anchor our decisions to the past or on bad information, and we worry about the present needs over the future needs. Or you can even go the opposite way. You worry too much about the future over the present, and you don't allow yourself to live in the present. Let me repeat these very briefly. It says, we tell ourselves we're bad at money, we'll never get ahead, that our past has put us at a disadvantage, that saving for retirement is hard, kids are expensive, that we have to keep up with our neighbors, we live with a scarcity mindset, we fear the catastrophic outcome, or we fear the mistakes that we're going to make, we anchor our decisions in the past. And we worry either about the present or the future and forget the opposite of that. So every time we tell ourselves 
one of these messages, we're doing two things. We're giving ourselves an excuse or an out for why we will never get better. And second, we're chipping away at the identity that we have. So if we've been making good decisions, if we hold on to this idea that we're bad with money, we're chipping away at the identity that we can handle money all right. We're fighting this internal battle, which makes it hard to hold on to those financial goals that you've set. So I want to ask a question, and I want to leave you with these actually two questions. Have you think about these for a week, and then next week we will talk a little bit further about this idea of identity. So the first question is, in what ways have you adopted a new identity in your life? And specifically, since this is a personal finance podcast, let's think about our personal finance identities. What identity in personal finance have you adopted? It could be that you've broken a curse within your family. It could be that you're going to be a saver. It could be that you're going to budget. It could be adopting an abundance mindset. It could be this idea that I'm not just slave to this job or slave to this small amount of money, but I have the ability to make more money. It could also be that, that you're, being, you're changing the decisions that you've made in the past. But I want to follow that up. So what have you adopted that's a new identity in your life? And then the second follow-up question is, what are you holding onto now that could stop you from keeping that identity? I want you to reflect on both of these questions. I'll put these questions in the show notes. Then next week, we'll actually come back and we'll talk about how we can actually fight back against this. But I want you to take some time to reflect on how you self-sabotage yourself in your financial life, just in your life in general as well. And so I will have these two questions in the show notes, and then we will talk in depth next week about how we can fight back against this self-sabotage. I want to thank you so much for joining me on this episode. Appreciate it if you leave a rating and review if you've enjoyed this. We all know people who struggle with this, and so I would softly, maybe softly, very softly share this with them because these are good things to reflect on. So until next week, remember that healthy financial decisions are intentional financial decisions. Intentional decisions this week lead to a healthy financial future. Start today, pull out your journal, answer these two questions, and then we will see you next week.